Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Russell Spatz. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, guys. Very unusual. You know, uh, there's a, there's a um, saying in the Bible. I think it's in the book of Mark. Uh where Jesus went to his hometown and he could do no miracles. And the line is, a prophet is never uh, accepted well in his own hometown. Or, or in other words, familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> so I rarely get asked to speak in my home group. Uh, I, I'll go all over the United States, all over the world. I go to different places, but my home group, no, forget about it. They say, oh my God, he's going to speak again. And that's just the way it is. It's okay. But it's good to be here. And uh, they asked me, so I was told whenever anybody asks you to do anything in AA, you always say yes. And uh, and so, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm chairing the Serenity Group uh, Tuesday meeting for three months because Jamie asked me whether I would chair the group at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I, I had to say yes. So my my deal is I haven't found necessary to have a drink since uh, January 25th, 1981. On my 43rd year of recovery, and I'm uh, 73 years old. I came in when I was 31, and uh, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about something. And I am going to try to talk about the first step. It may be the last five or ten minutes, but I am going to try to do that. Uh, I, I, I think, I do believe, now get my logic on this, that whenever I'm talking to a group, an Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm always sharing something about the principles of AA and the, and the steps because after 43, after 42 years and some months of being hammered into submission by repeated humiliations and numerous crushings of my self-sufficiency and studying the material and going to meetings and doing these steps, uh, there's not much I can say or do because my life, hopefully, if my life doesn't exhibit and if my story doesn't exhibit, and what I say doesn't exhibit the steps, there's something wrong, because I am a product of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am uh, I am the deal. You know, you throw an alky like me into the mixer and you in the oven, and you turn it on at 450 degrees and let it bake there for 43 years, and this is what you get. So here I am. So hopefully... Uh, I'll, you'll get something from it. Now I have, I've got to be, I've got to warn you. I've got opinions. You know, after 42 years of watching people go in and out of this thing, uh, and watching myself and what has happened to myself. And quite frankly, coming to one of the realizations where I started out thinking that nobody was like me and I was unique. 
And I ended up realizing fairly early on that we're all twins. And that's why this thing works so well. Because why would anybody listen to anybody in AA if they didn't feel, hey, you're talking about me? I've had those feelings. So we're all basically twins. So if I thought something, no matter how bizarre it is, if I felt something, no matter how crazy it is, if I've had some sort of insanity, no matter how insane it is, chances are there's a really good chance that you guys have, have felt the same thing. And that's why this thing works. And uh, so that's the deal. Now, so I've developed certain opinions, which I'm going to share with you. I'm not shy with that. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to do that. Now, Now I, I, I have to tell you that I don't speak for AA as a whole. And these are just strictly my opinions. Now, what that actually means in plain language is I think I'm absolutely right. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong. Uh, but, you know, it's a sort of feign humility of which I have little. I have to say, well, these are just my opinions. But you're free to do whatever you want to do. After all, you are alcoholics. And the chief characteristic is defiance. So you're going to do whatever you want to do anyway. So let me just start off by saying, uh, give, a, give a little history about uh, AA that I feel is uh, interesting. I find it interesting. First of all, if you're on this Zoom meeting, I want to welcome you. Here comes an opinion. I want to welcome you to the future of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know this has just started three years ago, and I know it's exploding. And I know you go to regular meetings, you know, the real meetings, where, where people say the real meetings, not the Zoom meetings. You know, you go to real meetings where there are people and you can hug them and you can you can shake their hand. I'm not saying anything. And I know you've heard from many people that go to real meetings that um, that uh, they don't like Zoom meetings because they're not real, real AA meetings. They're like different. They're not as good as uh, AA meetings. So let me tell you a little story, a little true story. OK. In 1935, Bill Wilson met Dr. Bob. He had a few months sobriety, Bill Wilson did, and Dr. Bob got sober. And it, when Bill Wilson was five years sober, when Bill Wilson was five years sober, he wrote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I don't, I don't know how many people here are five years sober. I, know, I don't know how many people have experience with people who are five years sober. Well, one of the reasons, without question in my mind, that I know there's a God is because I know there's no way Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson wrote that book without divine help. <laughs> I tell you that. There's no way. So at five years sobriety, Bill Wilson wrote the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he is the co-founder. And Dr. Bob is the other co-founder. Okay, now that's a fact. Fifteen years later, Bill Wilson wrote the 12 and 12. He had 20 years sobriety. 20 years sobriety. He wrote 12 and 12. And so you have Bill Wilson at 20 years. He's written the big book. He's written the 12 and 12. He may have written as Bill Season and all that sort of stuff. Published a lot of articles. Spoken a lot of meetings. 20 years sobriety. At 23 years sobriety, Bill Wilson was suicidal. He was about ready to either drink or kill himself or go down the tubes. I'm not saying anything against Bill Wilson. God bless him. He was an alcoholic. 
Okay? There is one who has all power. That one is God. It wasn't Bill Wilson. He's an alcoholic. 23 years sobriety. He wrote an essay. And he basically confessed the fact that, a, that notwithstanding the fact that he was a co-founder, notwithstanding the fact that he had done every step in the book a million times, notwithstanding this fact, fact that he was incredibly involved in service and knew the big book and the program backwards and forward, he was going down the tubes. And he was a baffled guy because he couldn't understand why, why, with being where he had where he was and who he was and what he was and everything he knew, why he would be crashing and burning and going through another hitting bottom at 23 years sobriety. And he wrote an essay. And the essay was called The Next Frontier, Emotional Sobriety. Now, I'll just tell you as an aside, I've seen people drink at 10 years. I've seen them drink at five years. I've seen them drink at 20 years. I've seen them drink at 25 years. I've seen them drink at 30 years or even 40 years. And I used to say to myself when I was young and foolish, I used to say with some guy with 20 years when he drank, well, he obviously didn't take the first step. Well, they say the first step you have to do with 100%. But I know, I now realize how ridiculous that is, how absolutely ridiculous that is. A guy with 20 years going to meetings for 20 years, Bill Wilson going to meetings for 23 years, is going down the tubes. I might say, well, he obviously hasn't taken the first step. And I now realize in my life, having gone through the ringer myself for 10 years, that it's not about the first step. I mean, it is about the first step, but it's not about the first step. The people that make it to 25, 30, 40 years that are rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence, that are experiencing much of heaven, and are, are experiencing something called emotional sobriety, it's something different than the first step. It's something different. And I've come to determine, and I may change my mind five years from now, that the real deal in this step, the deal that separates the men from the boys, is something called the sixth step. And the reason I feel that way is for two reasons. Because that's what has worked for me. And that's what I love to talk about, number one. Number two, in the 12 and 12, it says... This is the step that separates the men from the boys. And number three, it goes on to say, as a well-loved clergyman has often said, if a man is repeatedly trying for his lifetime by trying to expel anything that keeps him separated from God to grow in the image and likeness of his creator, then he is someone who you could say is definitely trying to grow and change and is separating himself from the boys as a man or a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. Not to mention the fact that it says in the big book, it says if you want to be rocketed in the fourth dimension of existence and you want to experience much of heaven, the great fact is this and nothing less than this. God has to become the central fact of your life. 
Your real reliance must always be on God. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. We're on a new basis of trusting and relying upon God. All men of faith have courage. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate in our lives what he would have us be. And once we begin to outgrow fear. And if you're sober and you haven't experienced sober fear, well, stick around. That's all. Stick around. There's nothing like sober fear. It's a scary deal to uh, to get to that deal. And there's many other bottoms in Alcoholics Anonymous. And finally, the third thing is, or the fourth or fifth thing is, Bill Wilson, when writing this essay at 23 years sobriety, when he had this epiphany trying to figure out what was wrong, he came to this conclusion. And I'm paraphrasing this because I don't have it by memory. He said, essentially, he said, I found what we have found is that are many oldsters. He called them oldsters. We call them old timers. There were many old timers who have passed the physical sobriety test. They call them the boo, the booze test, where they've gone through a lot of stuff, but they haven't, they haven't had a drink, but they have, but, but happiness, happiness has still eluded them. In the big book of alcohol, do you believe that it's possible to have 10 years sobriety and be and not be happy? Do you think it's possible to have five years sobriety and not drinking and not be happy? Think it's possible to have 20 years sobriety and not be happy? You know, in Vision View, it says here and then once in a while, a former drinker says, feel better, look better, having a better time. We laugh at such salad. We know he's going to try the old game again. Because he's not happy with his sobriety. Soon he'll know loneliness as few do. So what do you do when you have five years, three years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 35 years, 40 years, and AA stops working? You know, this disease is cunning, baffling, and patient. What happens when you're holding it together? and you're not drinking, and you're a paid-up member of the Not Drinking Club, and you haven't had a drink because you're doing service up the yin-yang, your service will prolong, will prolong the depression, will prolong the drinking, but it won't necessarily make it go away. So what do you do when you've been doing everything that you're supposed to do in AA, and you're still not happy? Where do you go there? Do you go to a meeting where you're hoping they're telling you how a person with 25 years can be happy and all they're talking about is don't drink and go to meetings? When does the not drink and go to meetings not quite fill the bill? Where are you going to go? Well, I'll tell you what Bill Wilson says in that emotional sobriety deal. He said they found that there are many old timers, people with 20 years or more, 15 years or more that are not happy with their sobriety. And he says, perhaps these old timers will be the spearhead, the spearhead of the next development in Alcoholics Anonymous. And let me tell you what the conclusion is Bill Wilson comes to. And you can read the essay for yourself. What he says is the real problem with Alcoholics, with alcoholics is unhealthy dependencies. 
And what he calls unhealthy dependencies, he also refers it to the fudge, is depending upon anything and everything in this world, including AA, and not depending or making God the central fact of your life. So let me tell you what I think the next development of Alcoholics Anonymous is. The, you know, he says perhaps these old timers will be the spearhead of the next development in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think you're involved in the next development in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think these Zoom meetings are the next development in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know why? Because they're exploding. Because they're getting bigger. Because they're from people all over the world. And if there are people that have five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, and they don't want to talk about the drinking thing because they're not drinking, they want to talk about the anxiety thing. They want to talk about the loneliness thing. They want to find out more about God. They want to get into the sixth step. They want to get into the 11th step. You want to know something? The great thing about these Zoom meetings is you don't have to go to them because they're geographically accessible or because they're right down the street. You don't have to hang out with meetings that you're not getting a lot from except maybe staying sober, which is a big deal. You, you are free to choose wherever you are on the planet to go to meetings where they're feeding you what you need, where you're getting fed. And more and more people are going to these meetings and showing up that are of the same mind and are looking for the same exact thing. And the meetings I go to are filled with people that are old timers and newcomers. And I'll tell you what I see in the last three years. And I've been around and I've seen thousands and thousands of alcoholics. I mean, now I've sponsored them. I see an amazing amount in the meetings I go to of incredible emotional stability of people that go to these Zoom, the Zoom meetings I go to. I just see an incredible amount of stability. This guy in the upper left-hand corner, Chris, is one of those examples of people that are far ahead of wherever I was when I had a couple of years, two or three years. How much time do you have, Chris? Two years now? Two years? I, I see so much growth in people that are doing these Zoom meetings. Now, I'm not putting down the in-person meetings. I still go to conventions. I do the conventions. I'm going every Thursday night. I do an in-person meeting and a virtual meeting. But I think in the next 20 years, I mean, you, you, you guys know about cell phones and the new generation and computers. I think in the next 20 years, it is entirely possible that the number of Zoom meetings will eclipse if they haven't already, the number of in-person meetings. And a lot of people will be doing Zoom meetings and being able to go to the meetings that are feeding them what they need. And uh, and that's the deal. So that's my, my little pontification. So I want to wel welcome you to these meetings. Now, I've been doing step series ever since I was five years sober, five or six years sober. And I tell a little story. I, I will tell you this. Uh, whenever I do get involved in a step series, I, lo I love to, as you know, I love to talk about God. I love to talk about the Lord. I love to talk about focusing on God for obvious reasons, because I think it's, uh, I love to talk about that stuff that they don't like to talk about in, in regular meetings. Okay. 
And I love to talk about that stuff. And I love to talk about the third step and the sixth step and the seventh step and all those other steps and all and all that stuff and, and focus on the God thing and the central fact to you. But I, the, the step I, I always sort of find, well, maybe it's not so difficult. I always think the hardest step to talk about in a weird way is the first step. And I'll tell you why. And it goes back to when I first started doing meetings. Because I had this idea in my mind, and this is the idea I had in my mind, that if I was doing a first step meeting where you admit that you're powerless over alcohol and your life is unmanageable, that what my job was, what my job was, was if you did not have, if you had not taken the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, my job was to convince you that you were an alcoholic. Uh, you know, that's my job. Now, I don't know how many people have worked, tried to work with alcoholics or sponsored people. I've been working with alcoholics and tried to work with alcoholics for 42 years now. And I got to tell you something. Alcoholics are tough people to work on. Let me tell you something. And then unless an alcoholic needs help, wants help and asks for help, they ain't budging. They are incredibly defiant and they do whatever they want to do. And if you keep on trying to work and trying to push an alcoholic who doesn't want to be pushed, you're going to wind up in a fate worse than death. You're going to wind up in Al-Anon. Insane. You understand? That's the deal. Because alcoholics will drive you crazy. You know? And that's just the bottom line. Now, the truth of the matter is, and this is the truth for me, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it. I, I became convinced that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable by drinking. Drinking. Do you, does anybody, did anybody hear that? I drank my way into the first step. Now, I know that just because that's my experience, it doesn't mean it's everybody's experience. But I got to be honest with you. My tendency is to think that unless you drink your way into the first step, you probably, there's probably going to be a little, you know, maybe I can do it again, you know, because drinking, you know what it says, by the way, you know what it says in the 12 and 12? In the 12 and 12, it says, we never argue with an alcoholic. If he says to us, he doesn't know or he's unsure, this is what we say to him. This is in our, in our literature. We say, why don't you try some controlled drinking? Now, you would never hear that in AA meetings. You know what they used to say to me when I went to meetings 40 years ago? They say, why don't you just go drink? I mean, can you imagine old timers? If I started with some sort of bullshit, he said, why don't you just go drink? I'll buy you your first drink. Get out of here. Why don't you stop going to meetings? We don't want to hear your crowd. Why don't you just go drink? Yeah, I'm telling you, in the 12 and 12, you look it up. We never argue with that. We say, if there, there's a problem, we say, why don't you just go drink? Why don't you just try a little controlled drinking? I had a sponsor. You know what he told me? He told me, Russell, never rob an alcoholic of his desperation. Every alcoholic has to drink his last drink. You don't drink your last drink. You come in here prematurely. Some crazy alcoholic there is going to say, well, but the person might die. Yes, 
he might die. Yes, he might die. Alcoholics are dying all over the place. We're about as common as dirt. Or better yet, we might just have a three-car accident and kill a three-year-old. That's usually what happens. Us, us wonderful alcoholics usually crash into other people. A whole family of four dies and we walk away. But the bottom line, yes, that may happen. We might die. But I'm just telling you what I was told. I was told, this, tell Russell, every alcoholic has to drink his last drink. Never rob an alcoholic of his desperation. But we are so anxious. We are so codependent. I hate the word codependent. We are so, our, our, our feelings of self-worth, our feelings of self-worth are, are, do not permit us to be rejected. Alcoholics feel so unworthy, so unworthy of anything. We have such a feeling of unworthiness, which is why we worry so much about what other people think about us. If, you know, some newcomer rejects us and fires us as a sponsor, we're like dying. You know what I mean? We feel so unworthy. We're so dependent on what other people think about us because our whole thing in life is, do you like me? Please don't hate me. Please accept me. We have that. And that, you know what that is? That's the real alcoholism. The drinking isn't the alcoholism. The drinking is a symptom of the alcoholism. The real alcoholism centers in our mind. And part of that alcoholism is the way we think. Our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And alcoholics hate being rejected. That's why we don't do well in romantic relationships. We just can't stand people saying no or turning their back on us. Or yet we just don't do well. On, on relationships where there's emotions involved, where we feel we might be rejected, or people don't like us, or people break up with us, or stuff like that. We just cannot, we will do it. I will whore. I'm talking about myself. I'm not talking about you. You guys obviously have a mildly case. I am a world-class whore. I will whore myself for your approval. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details if you're a racist and I need to be a racist to be approved, I will be the biggest racist you ever saw in your life. You understand? I will do whatever I have to do so that you will say, I really like you, Russell. I can't stand. You want to kill me? Just come up to me and say, you know what they were saying about you last night at the party? Just, just wipe me out. I won't be able to handle it. I can't handle the fact that somebody may not, that there's a possibility that somebody may not like me. God forbid somebody leaves this meeting because they don't like what I'm saying. They say, I, I couldn't have. And you know what that is? That's the real disease of alcoholism. And, you know, it says one of the things that alcoholics have to do is examine their motives. And sometimes our motives are selfish. And sometimes our motives are virtuous. And it's very easy for us to cover up a selfish motive by virtuous. And we will sacrifice anything and say anything to stop an alcoholic from drinking. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to talk to him. 
But the truth of the matter is, and the truth is, is that sometimes people just have to drink. Sometimes alcohols just have to drink. Sometimes that's the only... Listen, I don't know how you guys came into alcohols, and I know how I came in. And I know nobody was going to convince me to come into Alcoholics Anonymous until I got to the point where I was desperate. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I can tell you this. If you're in AA, the desperation is not over. I don't think I'm unique. If I was desperate at five years at three o'clock in the morning, you're going to be desperate at five years. If I was desperate at ten years at three o'clock in the morning sober, you're going to be desperate. If Bill Wilson was desperate at 23 years sober because of alcoholism, you're going to get it. We're all going to hit bottom numerous times, which is why they say the way we get the way we get a new perspective is unbelievably painful by repeated humiliation from the final crushing of our self-sufficiency. And so that all leads up to say the following. So I'm going to give you a little story which has something to do with the first step and it has something to do with the 12th step. As a matter of fact, it has something to do with every step. So when I was five or six years sober, I was asked to do a step series at a place called the Homestead Group, which is still in existence. And uh, I was just starting out doing the steps and I went down to this group and it was a little, it was a room and it had about 40, 50 people in it. Much the same as this this Zoom meeting has right now, and uh, they were all there, and I was up there doing a step. I have no idea what step I was doing. I just know this: I did the worst step meeting in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you happen to get the Guinness Book of World Records and you look up AA meeting underneath worst AA meeting. In the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, you will see Russell S. Homestead Group, you know, I don't know, 1985. It's right there. The worst meeting in alcohol. Nobody laughed. Nobody liked me. They were all looking at me funny. I wasn't getting through. And and you got to explain. I have to understand it wasn't because I wasn't sincere. I was there to explain to them and get them to understand that they were powerless over alcohol and their life was unmanageable. I was there to carry the message of the first step and they were not, they were not digging me at all. I could, I could just tell, I could just feel it. You know, you know what you can feel? See, that's one of the gifts, one of the gifts of alcoholics. I don't know if you guys have this gift. We are given a gift is we can tell what other people are thinking. And you know what else? It's an amazing thing. If you're an alcoholic like me, not only can you tell what other people are thinking, but you know, you do know this, they're always thinking about you. They're always thinking about you. And let me tell you something. It ain't good. It's bad shit. You understand what I'm saying? It's bad shit. Let me tell you something. You pass an alcohol in the, in the hall and you say hi, or not an alcohol, you can pass anybody in the hall and you say hello and they don't smile at you and say hi, how are you? They hate your guts. They hate you. There's something wrong with you. They're thinking about, they're not thinking about their mother that's dying in the hospital. 
Forget that crap. They're thinking about you. You know, there is a possibility. I've been working on this theory. Somebody told me long ago that there's a possibility that alcoholics are sensitive. Sensitive. I don't know. I don't know. I just think I'm perceptive. I'm perceptive. It's a difference, okay? So I'm up there trying to do the best I can to explain, to, to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to these fools, and they're hating my deal. And I'm not getting through it all. And I finally leave the meeting. I've got five years now. This is why I know Bill Wilson, you know, didn't write this book in five years without divine help. And I'm driving back, and I was on like the third step or the fourth step or something like that. And I, and I say to myself, I'm not going back. And now I sign up for a 12-week deal. You understand what I'm saying? And I say to myself, I'm not going back. Because let me tell you something. If you're an alcoholic, you're an excuseaholic. If you're an alcoholic, you know how to make excuses. My mother died. I have polio. I just found out I had COVID. I can't make you can make excuses. And I know I ain't never going back to that meeting because they didn't like me. I know they're talking about me behind their back. I know that they're sending out telegrams. They're calling up people saying, we just went to the worst meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous. It was this guy, Russell S. I know this is now spreading throughout the nation in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, Maddie, you're laughing because you don't know what it's like to be sensitive like me. I've never seen anybody that look as sensitive as I feel. I've never seen anybody in AA that look like they hate injustice as much as I feel injustice. It's just, I, I'm, I'm just more sensitive than a lot of people. That's all. It's a, it's a plus, you know? And so the bottom line is I, I, I knew I was never coming back. But here's the deal. I had been in Alcoholics Anonymous long enough, and I was, I, and I was well sponsored. That I knew that I had to go back because somehow in my mind, my sponsor drilled into me that whenever anybody asks you to do anything in AA, you always say yes. And I and don't ask me how this happened. It was because of a mean, horrible sponsor, and because I hit bottom in AA and I took the first step. And I was convinced that I was palace over alcohol and my life was unmanageable. I was convinced if I didn't go back there, I would drink again. I mean, I don't see any connection between lying or or not going back or not fulfilling response. I don't see the connection. But all I can tell you is by, by five years, they had brainwashed me sufficiently where I knew that if I did not go back to that room, even though I knew they were out to kill me and they hated me, I would drink again. And here's the key. Here's the key about the first step when it comes to why, how, why it's important. I would rather go back there and have them laugh at me and think me a fool than drink alcohol. Than drink alcohol. My fear of drinking alcohol was so great that I was going to go back there and take their humiliation. I was willing to humiliate myself because I didn't want to drink again. You know, that's how great my, and guess what? Back then, I don't know how it is today. I was never told if you drink, you can always come back. I mean, I had these horrible, horrible sponsors. They were terrible. Sponsors are supposed to lift you up. 
make you feel good. I had these terrible sponsors. They would always say, Russell, if you drink again, you probably won't make it back. Or you may not make it back. I mean, they left me with the understanding that if I was drinking again, I never thought, I never thought from day one that if I drank again, I would never I, I I would make it back. I never I never had that thought. To this day, I don't have the thought that if I drink again, I'll make it back. You know? Now I I mean not I know it sounds weird, but for somebody like me, that's the greatest thing in the world to have. I gotta tell you stuff. For somebody like me, who might test the waters a day, gonna be the greatest thing in the world is to know that if I drink, I lose all my friends and it's suicide and it's not coming back. That's what I needed. And how did I get that? I, I got that, number one, by hitting bottom. Hitting, why all this insistence on hitting bottom? Because nobody's going to do the stuff we're asked to do unless we're convinced that we're powerless over alcohol and our lives unmanageable. Halfway convinced? No. I don't, I can't have one of these days that things that one day, someday, somehow, I'll be able to drink like a normal person. That thing would kill me. I ain't never, I ever drink again, I ain't never coming back. And if I don't go back to that meeting, I'm going to drink again. And I ain't never coming back. And that's all, I suppose, the product of the first step. That's the product. So I went back to that meeting. So I went back to that meeting. And I, and I stood there at that meeting about to do that step. And they had the same 40 people there, probably there to laugh at me. I was such a fool. They wanted to see probably whether I could possibly do the meeting any worse than I did it the week before. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up to me. You can't make this crap up. Some, some kid comes up to me. I was like 35. He was probably like 30. And he says, I just want you to know. That the meeting you did last week saved my life. And I looked at him. I mean, I had just finished the worst meeting in the history of Outbox and Anonymous, documented in the Guinness Book of World Records. And this fool comes up to me and says, the meeting you did last week saved my life. And I said, really? And then he proceeded to say, when you said the chicken was on the roof, everything came together for me. My wife had just left me. She had just taken my kid. I lost my job. I was going to drink. I came to this meeting right before I was going to drink just to stop into the meeting to see if anybody was going to say anything. And when you said the chicken was on the roof, my whole life changed. And the entire program came together for me. Now, here's the deal. I had never said the chicken was on the roof. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't funny, Tina. This is a very profound thing I'm trying to do here. Don't get me wrong. I I was talking some poultry there. You understand? I knew what, I was talking some poultry. I knew it was, but I never said the chicken was on the roof. He got it all wrong. I said the turkey is in the basement. And he said, the chicken is on it. Now, don't get me wrong. I took credit for it. I said, yeah, turkey in the base. Uh, chicken on the roof. I say that all the time. I took credit for it. And then you know what I realized? I realized that uh, I wasn't there to carry the message. 
That's not what the 12th step says, is it? It says, listen to what it says. It says, we tried to carry the message. Isn't that what it says? It says, we tried to carry the message. You know what the, you know what the 12th step says I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to do the best job I can do on the night I'm called to do it. And I did do the worst AA meeting in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that night. But you want to know something? It was the best meeting I could do that night. I was trying to carry the message. And what I have to understand is whether the message is received or not has to do with God and the Holy Holy Spirit. Because here's what happened. Here's what I realized happened with every meeting. That message, the turkey in the basement, went across that room and all the way to the back where that guy was sitting. Turkey in the basement, turkey in the basement, turkey in the basement. And it went into his ears. And God knew exactly what this man needed in order to heal his heart. And he heard chicken on the roof. And he heard chicken on the roof. And guess what? And I get the credit for it. And I get the credit for it. So we have, this is the way it works. So right now we have 45 people in this meeting. There's 45 people thinking they're hearing what I'm saying. And the bottom line is, there's 45 people hearing 45 different messages, and actually not even not even the same message. Some people are hearing this line, some people saying turkey in the basement, you know, you know, fruit fly is on the tomato. Who knows what they're hearing? Or whether they're hearing anything. You understand what I'm saying? 45 different messages, and I think we can all agree at this point, this is probably the worst first step meeting in the history of Zoom, of Alcoholics Anonymous. I think there's no question about it. They're going to have to rewrite that Guinness Book of World Records. Because I can tell by looking at you guys, you ain't digging this shit at all. You understand what I'm saying? Once again, the worst meeting in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous in Zoom AA. But the great news is the meeting is not about what I, I say. It's really about what you hear. And what you hear has to do with what you need to hear. And some people heard about the first step. And some people heard about the 12th step. And some people heard about the third step. And some people, man, they may not have heard anything at all that makes any sense. They'll think of something on the way home. Who knows what's going on? And all I did was do what the Lord told me to do, and that is show up at this meeting and try to carry a message. The best message I can carry and the only other thing I can say is, listen, I drank. I drank. All I can say is this, and I've said this before at this meeting, so a lot of you guys have heard this repeated, but it's the truth. I always try to think, how can I express the first step when it comes to alcohol in four minutes or less? You know, because I used to realize, and I do realize this is true. I do realize this is true. I'm going to be speaking up in Wisconsin in about uh, a month from now, and I do realize that I have a message, and the re- message is my own testimony, my own story, and I tell a long version, it takes an hour, and you know, and it's usually 
for convention stuff and things like that. But, but I do realize that there's got to be a way of expressing the first step in less than four minutes. And the best I can do and the best I've been able to do, because it's the truth, is, is what is, what, what was the alcoholic thing with me? And the alcoholic thing with me is, I don't remember my first drink. It was probably Mogan David wine or something like that at a religious testimony. But the first time I remember getting drunk is I went to the Sebring racetrack when I was 17 or 16 and a half years old for the Sebring races with a gal named Debbie, cute little blonde. And I was 17, and I think she was 17 or whatever. And I drank a quart bottle of Pope 45 malt liquor, and I got drunk and I got laid. And for the next 15 years, I tried to replicate that experience with everything. Whatever that experience gave me, a feeling of being a man, a feeling of graduating, a feeling of really having somebody really care about me, a feeling of being accepted, whatever that deal was, it was so incredible. And guess what? It could only happen with booze. It could all, whenever you use booze to do anything, you lose the ability to do the same thing without the booze. If you use alcohol to have sex, you lose the ability to have sex without the alcohol. If you use alcohol to walk up to a woman and ask her to dance, or to try to make a romantic connection, you lose the ability. to. If you use alcohol in order to blend in with people, you know, I used to walk into a bar and worry about whether people would like me. I'd have a couple of drinks. I felt like I owned the fucking group, like I owned the bar. Whenever you use alcohol as a, or anything as a lubricant to help you live your life, you use, if you use alcohol to go to sleep, you lose the ability of sleeping Without the alcohol. Many times I have newcomers saying, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. And I say to them, listen, nobody ever died from lack of sleep. When you're ready to sleep, you'll sleep. When you use alcohol to do anything, you lose the ability to do it without the alcohol. Without, without the alcohol. And the bottom line is, is I spent the, the rest of my life, the next 15 years, negotiating, trying to figure out how I could get that feeling, whether it's from, and let me tell you something. Alcohol wasn't the only thing that gave me that feeling. Having money gave me that feeling. Having a new car gave me that feeling. Getting a promotion gave me that feeling. Being a lawyer gave me that feeling. Losing weight gave me that feeling. Wearing really snazzy clothes gave me that feeling. I have so many things in this world that give me the same feeling of self-esteem I had by getting laid. You understand what I'm saying? I have so many things in this world that give me the same feeling that I chased after, the fudge that I spent. The only thing about alcohol is this. No woman, no car, no amount of money, no job ever worked quite as well and quite as fast as just a few drinks. And if alcohol could do for me today what it did for me when I was 17 years old, I'd be drinking it. But alcohol doesn't work for me anymore, so I don't drink it. And the sad news about my life is alcohol stopped working for me 10 years before I realized it stopped working for me, and I hurt a lot of people. And so I don't drink it. And all I know is that if I didn't hit bottom and I get, get to a point in my life where I knew loneliness as few do, 
on December 25th, 1980, and I hit my knees, and I knew it was over, and I knew my life was over, I'd still be drinking it. I needed, that's my first step story in three minutes. That's the, and here's the real crazy part. Now here's the real crazy part. Hopefully you guys will appreciate that. You know that thing about the women and about the cars and about the money and about all that stuff? That continues even after you stop drinking. That continues. You know something? I spent 10 years. Bill Wilson spent 23 years. I spent 10 years negotiating with the disease of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was, I, would, I, I was never an atheist. I was not an agnostic in my mind. I would hold hands and say the serenity prayer. I would hold hands and say the Lord's prayer. I didn't have a hard on against religion. I'm not a recovering Catholic. You know what I mean? I wasn't pissed off at religion. But you want to know something? I had God in the God box. We brought out at 3 o'clock in the morning when I didn't have any money. I had God in the trunks of the car next to the spare tire. I took him out at AA meetings. You know, every once in a while I'd say the serenity prayer. But the rest of my thought life was about getting the woman, getting the car, getting the money, getting the job. I negotiated. You know, it says God is everything or he's nothing. There is no middle of the road solution. You don't get rid of your old ideas. The result was nil until you let go absolutely. God has to be the central factor in my life. And here's the way I work it. It says there is no middle of the road solution. But here's the problem. I'm a middle of the road kind of guy. I'm a half measures kind of guy. Here's what I want. I want the faith in Jesus that some of these people have. They're sold out to them and they're happy. And the woman. I want the faith in Jesus and a million dollars. I want the faith in God and a new car. I want the faith in God and a great job. I want the faith in God. I want people like me. And here's the problem, especially if you're in AA. If you go to get the faith in God, People don't like you. I learned real fast that this is sort of like a bucket of crabs here. You start talking about God, people come up to you and say, we don't do the God thing. Because alcohol, because alcoholism is the disease where you hate God. That's one of the consequences. That's why in chapter of the agnostics, it says this. It says this. I'm sort of getting to the second step, but I'll stop after this. Chapter agnostics says, of course, we had to talk about God. And it says, here's where the problem arises, because with alcoholics, the hackles in their neck stand on, and they hate the idea of God. Bill Wilson hated the idea of God. He said he, he hated it. He couldn't stand it. He had antipathy towards it. He couldn't stand it when they talked about a personal God. That's why they said to him to get him in. They say, well, why don't you pick out your own conception? That was a compromise to get him to come in. Most people never leave that compromise. Most people never leave that compromise. Most people, they buy a ticket to the stadium, but they're never on the playing field. They never graduate from that compromise. And the bottom line is, for me, is I understood, you know, I understood that the real problem with alcoholics and the problem with is this desire to get both things, to have your cake and eat it too, to give your life to God, but also give your life to the world. And it don't work that way. And it don't work that way. And there's some more pain down the road. You'll find out about it. So that's it. That's all I have to do and share tonight. So I don't know. What step was that? Anybody want to put a label on that? I don't know. But it was 
I think we can agree it is the worst step in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. 